Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. We're covering all of Swedish history chronologically. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 67 and we're back after covering the early life and then dramatic, piratical, political and plucky years that Margareta had in charge of Denmark as the regent for her young son. But before we continue her story and the story of the two Scandinavian kingdoms she is now in charge of, we need to do our Swedish phrase of the week. And this one's a bit of a funny one. It's hänger ihop som lär och långhalm. And this translates to English as to stick together like clay and long straws of hay. The actual meaning is two things that are closely connected or two people who stand by each other through tough times and through thick and thin. We turned once again to the Nordic History Museum here in Stockholm and their website where they have an excellent list of Swedish phrases and their origins. So clay and long straw might seem like two very different things, but they were actually used, mixed together, in construction of old Swedish houses as a kind of insulation between the planks of wood. And from there, the words took on a figurative meaning to mean two things that go closely together. An example of how we use the phrase hänga ihop som ler och långhalm could be, for example, you could say, my son just started school and he's made a new best friend. Now the two do everything together. They hänger ihop som ler och långhalm. They stick together like clay and long straws of hay. Great. That's some nice historical origin to this week's Swedish phrase. But now it's time to briefly recall what happened last time. We saw how Margareta rose politically whilst regent for her son, King Olaf, down in Denmark. Her son was just five years old when he became the king, and so definitely needed a helping hand. He had that in the form of his mother, but also the drots of Denmark, Henning Pudebusk. And together they focused on trying to reclaim Skorna from the Hanseatic League after Henning had signed it over to them for 15 years at the Treaty of Stralsund. Margareta became quite friendly, if you believe the highly believable evidence that is, with a group of pirates who she, allegedly, funded to try and force the Hanseatic League out of Skorna with. She led a decade-long campaign with her drots, and whilst they didn't get the Hansa to give up their territories early, they did make sure they got them back as stated in the treaty. Once back in Danish hands, the seas around Skåne were suddenly free of pirates. Ah, very suspicious and surprising. Mm. We also saw how once her son Olaf died in August of 1387, Margareta and Henning Pudebusk made sure that Margareta was elected almighty lady and husband and guardian for the whole kingdom of Denmark. And this was rushed through the political system in a bit of a dodgy way, and so dodgy, in fact, that some historians have called it a coup. It was rushed through, though, because Duke Albert IV of Mecklenburg, nephew of King Albert over in Sweden, had an equal, if not better, claim to the throne. But the Danes naturally didn't want a Mecklenburger in charge, so the crown fell to Margareta instead. Almost immediately, Margareta became ruler of Norway too, which made sense as her son was king there as well and he was now dead. 
Sweden didn't want to miss out on all this drama and rebelling Swedish nobles fed up with the rule of King Albert and seizing the chance after the death of towering political giant Björnson Grip, they turned to Margrethe for help. That's where we left it last time, with King Albert fleeing to his nephew in Mecklenburg to raise an army and the Swedish nobles arriving in Denmark to ask Margrethe for help. Yes, but before we continue, we should just clarify one thing about Margareta's name. And not just her name. In fact, this is something that comes up time and time again with people who feature in both Swedish and Danish and Norwegian history. Indeed, and it's because the Scandinavian languages are very similar, but also a little bit different. So Margarete is called Margarete with an E at the end in Denmark and Norway, but Margareta with an A in Swedish. It's just two versions of the same name. In fact, it's the same with my name. I'm Elsa in Swedish, but had I been born in Denmark or Norway, my parents would most likely have gone with the version of the name that has an E on the end. So I would be Elsa if I were Danish or Norwegian. And that's also sometimes what Danes and Norwegians call me because it's just well, their version of my name. Yeah, and a similar difference in one vowel in the spelling is true for some of the other names we see a lot in Nordic history. We've seen loads of Håkons coming up. So that's Håkon in Norway and Denmark and Håkan in Sweden. Olaf in Norway and Denmark, Olof in Swedish. The difference is quite minute, especially if you're just saying the name really quickly in a podcast or to your friends. But if you're reading it and doing some reading on your own, then that is the same person. They just have their name ever so slightly differently. English sources tend to use either version with no real continuity or just come up with their own name. Uh, yeah, Unfortunately, there's not too much consistency in the English versions out there. Yeah, and so yeah, that was just a quick side note. Margarete or Margareta doesn't really matter. She's still the same person. Yes, it's the same person. And if she agrees to help these Swedish nobles out against King Albert, then it's going to shape up to be a fight of blockbuster proportions. Two Nordic kingdoms against the other. One side has a weak king bereft of local support by the many German merchants in cities like Stockholm and Kalmar. And the other is an all-powerful woman, now with two whole kingdoms in her hands after the recent death of her loyal and competent Drotz Henning Podobusk. Wow, sounds a bit like the intro to some Hollywood movie, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, and rightly so. It's easy to look back at history and point at certain moments as being pivotal, influential, or extremely important, but even at the time, it must have been clear that this had the potential to be a defining moment of the age, especially if Margareta emerged victorious. But of course, Margareta isn't going to agree to just send her troops to Sweden and spend a lot of political capital getting involved in another big war. After all, she's only recently concluded a long pirate campaign against the Hansa and is busy making sure her rule is followed in Denmark and Norway. So she has a few demands for the 12 Swedish nobles that arrive in Dalaboy Castle and invite Margareta over. She wants land, property and political control over the kingdom, essentially. First thing of note though, this meeting is actually taking place, like I said, in Dalaboy Castle on the western shore of Lake Vernon. 
Nobody could claim that this was anything but a full-blown treasonous affair. Nine of the Swedish delegates were executors of Boo Jonsson Group's estates. At this meeting, they swore allegiance and service to Margareta as the almighty lady and true husband of Sweden. They also promised that under no circumstances would they negotiate, become reconciled with, or accept any offer from King Albert or any of his helpers. It sounds a bit like uh, Santa there with his, <laughs> with his little helpers. <laughs> that's true. For the Simpsons, Santa's little helper. But one other thing that's like slightly interesting about this is that they're using that title that's used for kings and men in the word husband when talking about Margareta as a way to legitimize her rule and make it seem like, oh, well, she's, you know, she's good too. She's going to be the husband of Sweden, not just the wife of Sweden. Yeah, it's interesting. You see all the time when you look at Margareta's reign, how she is referred to with these male titles because I suppose it's out of the ordinary that she is a a woman. So, you know, we might think it sounds funny that Margareta is referred to as the husband of these uh, countries, but it was probably just more that that was the term used. Um, Anyway, what's also interesting is that these executors handed over almost all of Bouillon-Sangrip's properties to the crown. They only kept two castles in Finland, which Margarete granted to them as fiefs. But that's it. They had fought against Albert when he tried to claim these properties for himself, but now they're giving them all, bar two, to Margarete. It shows you the weakness of Albert's position, and crucially, the strength of Margarete right now. Yeah, she can just say, give me all these castles, when uh, King Albert was almost begging, saying, can I have some of the castles, please? So it's a totally different situation. Yeah, she was granted far-reaching authority, but also made sure to promise that the Swedish people would enjoy all the freedoms and privileges which the king had granted them and their ancestors before King Albert came to Sweden. So this means things like tax privileges and stuff like that. Yeah, as King Albert has been trying to tax them and raise additional taxes against all precedent, and we know that the rich landowners of the country despised any attempts to be taxed at all, so this was their number one condition for inviting in Margareta. They wanted the country to be ruled by Swedish law too, quite specifically, and not Danish law imported by Margareta. This couldn't have been too much of a demand, as Margareta has always followed the local laws up in Norway, for example, up till now anyway. Margareta herself wanted to ensure that she could call on these noblemen in her quest to conquer all the castles and lands still controlled by Albert and his family, especially Kalmar and Stockholm, who were still stubbornly refusing to join the councillors' rebellion. Yes, they were, as these cities were big trading places dominated by German merchants. They were still loyal to King Albert. In fact, at the end of July, Stockholm reaffirmed their commitment by repeating an oath of allegiance to the king. It wouldn't just hand over the keys to some Danish lady. Whilst the councillors had handed over the keys to the rest of the country to Margarete, there were still a few locked doors, or locked town gates, around which she would be forced to kick down. She had secured political power, All that remained was full military control of the country. 
Yeah, because King Albert is down in Mecklenburg raising an army to get rid of her. So yeah. there's still some debate over that side of things. And the rebels could be forgiven for thinking that the fate was on their side, as right at the end of the year, with his uncle as his main visitor, probably walking around the castle together, Duke Albert IV, the nephew of King Albert, dies. That's an auspicious end to the year 1388, perhaps? Yeah, well, if you're on the, the Swedish side and not the German side, we'll, we'll see what happens next. But yes, this means that the rule of Mecklenburg passes from Duke Albert IV to his cousin and King Albert's other nephew, John, who becomes John IV of Mecklenburg. This doesn't change any policy, and in fact, it seems like John was a very committed soldier in King Albert's forces and political sides as we go forward. So yeah, it's it's not really changing the makeup, just one Albert has died, just not the one that we're super concerned with. Whilst we're on the topic of all these Mecklenburger noble people running around the countryside, King Albert has a young son called Eric, and he's around at this time, and he's with his father down in Mecklenburg, preparing to join the army of German nobles, mercenaries, and soldiers that's about to return to Sweden and fight for his father's place at the head of the country. Yes, it's a father and son team, that's for sure. Albert is also joined by the Duke of Holstein, plus the Swedish bishop of Skala. So it isn't all Germans, but the bulk of his forces are fellow Germans. So King Albert is almost ready to fight at the start of 1389. Margarete is getting ready too as the calendar turns and the start of the new decade has been called one of the most troublesome, bloody, and unstable times in the history of the nations around the Baltic Sea. Well, that gives you a bit of a hint about what's going to happen next. <laughs> yeah. In another twist of fate, Margareta appointed a German nobleman, Henrik Pargro, as the commander of her army in Sweden. Henrik had served King Albert's father, Duke Albert, for two decades before switching sides and joining the Danish army in 1384 when Margareta made him a captain. He rose through the ranks and led the army that Margareta sent to Sweden at this time to take on the cities and forces still loyal to King Albert. Part of the Danish army marches on Axval Castle near the town of Skara, which was sticking with Albert. The main force remains behind in Halland in the south, waiting to see what King Albert's going to do and what they should do next. A siege begins up at the castle, and it's at that point that Albert and his son land in Sweden at Kalmar and head off to try and relieve and rescue the castle. The Danish army hear that Albert's heading towards the castle, and so they head off north too to try and catch him on the way. Albert then realises he's being followed and orders his army to stop and turn south to face the main Danish army. On the 24th of February, the two sides meet at Åsle, a small church town, or village really, about 10 kilometres east of the market town of Falköping. For such a momentous clash, the battle wasn't actually that large. The Danes had about 1,500 knights and foot soldiers, and Albert's army was of similar size. The Swedish-Danish army took up defensive positions in front of a bog when they arrived at the battlefield. Albert is keen to attack quite quickly and doesn't listen to advice from an experienced officer behind him who says that the boggy ground isn't suitable for his heavy German cavalry. 
These horses go through anyway, and they attack through the bad terrain, but get bogged down, if you pardon the pun, and things go pear-shaped very quickly. Oh, wow. Lots of metaphors there. Yeah, lots of metaphors, and for good reason, I guess. Before long, death and capture are the only alternatives for the German knights stuck in this horrible tactical position. There was one small hope for Albert, though, as one of his trusted followers, Gert Snarkenborg, is ordered to lead a cavalry charge across one of the narrow strips of passable land that's still around. He's just about to smash into the Swedish-Danish troops in front of him when a Swedish knight leads a counter-charge to cut him off. And right at the last moment before the two forces clash, Snarkenborg loses heart and wheels his horse around and orders his men to run away with him. And so he just leaves the battlefield with his 60 knights that he's been uh, fighting with. Oh, that's quite cowardly. I say, someone who's never been in battle. Uh, I mean, good for him, I guess but also not good strategically for Albert. No, not good strategically, tactically, politically, any, any way for Albert at all. This is a very bad idea. And uh, it's also the final straw. And that means that Albert is destined to lose the battle. Despite the fact that people like the Bishop of Scarra is there in full battle gear, it says in the sources. And so lose the battle he does. Albert himself is captured along with his son in a disastrous result. There's no escape for them or no fighting to the last man surrounded by bodies, they just give up and are captured. And so Albert and his son are put in chains and led away. Sources say that about 20 German and 8 Swedish or Danish knights are killed in the battle. Just like a lot of the battles around this time, the peasant foot soldiers are forgotten and we have no idea how many of those died because they're not counted by the chronicle. One of these dead Swedish-Danish knights is actually Margareta's general, Henrik Paro. He must have really been leading from the front there to have suffered such a fate, or been extremely unlucky right near the back. Yeah, there's an amusing story that relates that on the way to captivity, Albert is led away past this old commander who had warned him of attacking over such terrible land for cavalry right at the start. Albert is said to have cried out, Oh, old man, old man, what if I had followed your advice? The phrase is funnier in Swedish, I think, because in Swedish he says, Oh, gubbe, gubbe, hade jag följt ditt råd. Yeah, because gubba is one of those words that's a bit hard to translate. It sort of means old man, old dude, but in a bit of a negative way. It's also the word that's often used, like, if you're looking at a football match, for example, the players will be gubbe, gubbana, even if they're 12 years old and they're not old. It's just... Yeah, it's a strange word to translate, gubbe. But it mainly means, yeah, if there was some old dude waiting for a bus who's a bit drunk, you'd be like, oh, wow, check out that gubbe waiting for the bus. So, yeah, it's a bit... It's a a nice, flexible and funny word, and it's great that it's uh, used in this context. But... It's now when uh, Margareta shows a bit of her political savviness by allowing the captured German knights, a- apart from the king and his son Eric, to buy their freedom if they wanted to, which presumably they all did. And other lower-level prisoners, like the foot soldiers, were released, even the Bishop of Skara, who was allowed to keep his job too. Wow, lucky for him. 
Now, like most battles from this time, there are some different sources and reports from the battle. Some don't mention the boggy ground at all, for example. The German chronicler Dietmar, who is going to be more pro-Mecklenburg than he is pro-Swedish, well, he says this, The king was so eager for battle and in such a hurry that not all of his people had time to prepare themselves. When it came to battle, he won the first engagement and tore up two Danish army divisions under two banners, but his success did not last long. The king lost the battle with all the lords and knights who took part in the battle, except those who fled. Among them was one called Jert Snarkenboy. It was his first day as a knight, and he took 60 men with him who all fled. That was the main reason why the battle was lost. Wow, yeah, that sounds pretty bad. And um, I can't believe it's, your, it's your first ever battle, your first day as a knight, and then you're just about to maybe win the battle, and you say, nah, I'm going to turn around and run away. <laughs> it's a rough start to the job, it right. must be said. Like, most of us on our first day, we're just kind of figuring out how the printer works and, like, installing all the software on our computers, if we have that type of job. This guy, his first day, he's fighting some Danes. And that's why this episode is called Worst First Day Ever. <laughs> yeah, it was for Snarkenboy. Also, he's already off to a bad start with a name like Snarkenboy. Yeah, it's not the best. Margareta herself wasn't actually anywhere near the battle when it took place. She was in Varbear Castle when she got the news, and she ordered her men to take the king to Bohu's castle, where she would catch up and meet them. You can certainly imagine that Margareta was excited to see the result of the battle for herself, and finally meet her political opponent and his son in person, and in chains. She was now 36 years old, and she had finally bested a political opponent who'd been troubling her for quite a while now. Good news indeed! The Lübeck annals say that Albert was tortured, but this is more likely to be propaganda, as we know that noble prisoners were generally kept in good conditions, with a few notable exceptions, of course. Yeah, we've seen a few dukes and Danish bishops starved and put in dark, damp cells over the years, but that's usually unusual, uh, if you can say that. Once the two leaders met, Margareta would have asked Albert to order his cities of Kalmar and Stockholm to surrender, but he refuses. He's still clinging on to hope that someone will rescue him as he lingers in his cell and has nothing to do with the rest of what's going on in the outside world. And so Margareta has to conquer the rest of Sweden. As a result, Stockholm digs in for the long term. Kalmar, not so much. Nope. Margareta's forces start negotiations with the German leaders of Kalmar and the city is given up. But only after Margareta pays the Germans there for some of the larger estates in the area. She then orders that all the castles built in the Mecklenburg era have their defences taken down. She didn't want strongholds around the country where people could dwell and organize resistance to the crown. She wasn't going to go down the same way as Albert and numerous kings before him had. Yeah, she's very wary of a resistance to her rule building up, so she takes steps to stop this early on. 
But the bad news is that Stockholm is still resisting, and so is the rest of Mecklenburg back down in Germany. Duke John is now the face of this resistance, and pledges to continue the fight by any means necessary to help his uncle. In fact, he takes a leaf out of Margareta and Henning Puderbusk's book. Ooh, is it pirates? Oh yes, another pirate fleet is coming. The Duke of Mecklenburg starts getting ready to employ pirates to fight against the Danish-led Triple Kingdom, and he raises funds to fund raids against shipping in the Baltic Sea. The duchy orders the harbours in Rostock and Wiesmar to open up for all enemies of Denmark who want to come in. And unsurprisingly, the Hanseatic League is appalled. They'd only just gotten used to free seas after Margareta's own stint as a pirate queen and wanted to keep the Baltic Sea a place for safe travel and trade. Lübeck and Stralsund tried in vain to restrain their activities, pleading for Mecklenburg to stop planning to attack the many trade ships that cross the seas. But Mecklenburg doesn't listen and keeps planning for this grand pirate fleet and preparing to unleash terror on the seas. This is pretty bold by Mecklenburg, but actually probably the only real option Duke John has on the table now his cousin and uncle are imprisoned. Margarete is now in charge of three full kingdoms, with Stockholm being the only tiny piece of Scandinavian soil still loyal to the German noblemen. They couldn't fund a military large enough to take them on, so it had to be an irregular war instead. Margrethe moves quickly to formalise her grip over Sweden. We mentioned her young great-nephew last time round, who she brought over from Pomerania and forced him to change his name to Eric and all of that. Well, it is now that he is formally introduced to the various royal councils. Leading figures from around her realms are brought to Helsingborg in June 1389, just a few months after her victory at Osla. Eric is shown to the crowd and introduced as Margareta's rightful heir, a boy who will become the next king of Sweden, Norway and Denmark. Margareta adopts Eric as her foster son in a very Roman way of doing things. He actually becomes king of Norway there and then, and is formally proclaimed heir to the Swedish throne later in the year at Söderskelping. Margareta, however, is definitely still in charge, even in Norway where Eric is the king, because for one, Eric is still very young at this point, so even though he's nominally king of Norway, Margareta will remain in charge until the day of her death, really, because she's keeping on to all of this control, and Eric's very much a figurehead at this point. Yeah, he's also only about seven or eight years old, certainly not old or wise enough to rule these kingdoms just yet. A second example of how Margarete is still in charge is the fact that the Swedish nobility, both regular and religious, worldly and clerical, accept that people in Sweden have to pay an extra tax to help bring an end to the war with Mecklenburg and Stockholm. This tax, called en hjälp, or a help, was to be paid out so that this great war with the help of God and our noble lady may come to a good and quick end so that peace can be restored in the country and every man can live according to the law. 
At the same time as this extra tax was agreed, Queen Margareta promised to donate 10,000 silver marks to the Swedish church, to the cathedrals, churches and monasteries of the country. The Queen also had to promise that new bishops in Sweden would be filled with native churchmen and not foreigners. The Swedish bishops were worried that Danish friends and confidants of Margareta might be placed in the offices, as she'd done this with various Danish bishoprics back home, appointing her friends to these positions. This 10,000 mark fee was a huge amount of money. So huge, actually, it was almost the total annual budget of the Church of Sweden at the time. In return, the Archbishop of Uppsala, several bishops and secular councillors and knights promised that, with all their power, they would aid and protect the new masters in Sweden for the present and in the future. So Margareta is calmly and quickly enforcing her will on the nobles and people of her realms, but in a way that they somehow go along with it. She also promised Swedish nobles that she wouldn't hand over property and land to foreigners, but before long, Danes and Germans were in command of various castles and the owners of property in Sweden. In reality, there was nothing they could really do about this, and there doesn't seem to be too much public grumbling. Margareta is certainly now the boss, once and for all. At least everywhere except from Stockholm. The German merchants there are still fiercely loyal to their imprisoned king, Albert. It's important to remember how much of a hold these German merchants had over cities such as Kalmar, Visby and Stockholm. We saw how there were rules that German merchants were only allowed a certain amount of seats on the city council in Stockholm, because otherwise they could conceivably win all the seats. And in Visby, they funded impressive churches and other building projects, not least helping to fund the giant walls around the city. Yeah, these were powerful people indeed, and a group that Margareta couldn't just let sit there and oppose her rule. The other problem was that the city of Stockholm itself was almost impossible to take in battle. If you're looking at a map of modern Stockholm, the city back then was essentially just what is now Gamla Stan, the old town. That's a relatively small island. It has a perimeter or circumference of about two and a half kilometers or one and a half miles. And as of 2021, it had around 3,000 people living there. So it's not very big. Back then, it also had city walls that meant that it was tough to take by force. Tensions began to rise in the city after the recent battle. Local Swedes ended up getting involved in fights with German merchants, arguing about who was the rightful ruler of Sweden. This isn't going well. No, certainly not going well for the normal people living in the city. And realising they were going to need to try and keep control by force, the German inhabitants of Stockholm form a bodyguard, paramilitary group, or group of hooligans called the Hood Brethren, or Cap Brothers, the Hetterbrödena in Swedish. And they were essentially thugs who would wander around the streets and beat up Swedish people. After a while, the Swedes and the merchants who were allied with them couldn't take any more, and they rose up in violent protest. On the 11th of June in 1389, three notable Swedes were arrested by the Cap brothers, and some say this included the Swedish mayor, and they were taken to the Trekrona Castle, the three-crown castle that's in the city. 
Not accepting this brazen act of political overreach, an armed mob of Swedes marched to the city square and demand the release of these prisoners. Now, either one or all of these prisoners were released for a big ransom. And everyone went home, and perhaps the Swedes thought that the Germans would finally see sense and realise they couldn't just go around capturing the mayor. Well, they were wrong. The very next day, the German city councillors invited their Swedish colleagues to the city hall. When they arrived, they were all arrested. They were arrested for treason, taken to the castle, and tortured. This certainly isn't like dialing down the tensions at all. This is not calming down. And as we know by now, these Swedish people should never have accepted an invitation from your sworn enemies just after you think the fight is over. This is like Swedish History 101. Don't accept an invitation just the day after you stopped fighting. Don't go to spend Christmas with your brother that you've fought with for 15 years. Those are the two main lessons of Swedish history. Anyway, whatever the Germans wanted, the prisoners clearly didn't accept their demands. On the 15th of June, three of these prisoners were burnt at the stake. It sounds like the Germans thought there was a lot at stake here to go to those extremes. Anywho, this certainly didn't change the minds of the Swedish councillors and their allies. On the 17th of June, the rest of the prisoners were taken over to Schepplingerholmen, which back then used to be an island, but is now part of the Stockholm mainland on the other side of the water from Gamla Stan. There, in a story worthy of Olga of Kiev, they were put into a wooden shed, the door was locked, and it was promptly set on fire. Nobody survived. I mean, I think this is sending a very clear message obey German rule of Stockholm, swear allegiance to the rightful king, i.e. Albert, and all will be fine. A number of Swedes clearly don't agree and they're expelled from the city. The murders committed in this summer week go down in history as the Schiplingemorden, the Schiplingem murders or massacre, after the island where it took place. Some sources say that only around a dozen Swedes were murdered in these actions, with the highest estimate being 76. Either way, they would have been prominent members of the community, with many being city councillors, so this was a big deal. Indeed, and the German merchants even eventually realised that they had perhaps crossed the line with these actions, and they set up three memorial stones in the honour of the dead Swedes. So, at least that's something, I guess? Now, Margareta obviously doesn't think that this is the most positive of developments. She's determined to get Stockholm under control and finally kick out the last of these Germans. It doesn't take very long for her to realise that it won't really be possible, though. You can't storm the city, and so the only alternative is a siege. It's relatively easy to make sure that the people can't leave the city. Camps can be set up on the surrounding mainland and so forth. But stopping anyone from resupplying the city from the sea is quite tough. In fact, it turns out to be almost impossible. The German defenders in Stockholm know this as well and settle in for the long haul and refuse to give up the city. 
down south, the Mecklenburg pirate fleet finally starts to take shape. As the year 1390 starts, the fleet is ready to head to Stockholm to relieve their brothers in arms, and of course plunder anything they can on their way. The great pirate fleet sets sail. And that is probably a good point to leave it for next time. I'm sorry, breaking up just as uh, we get into the exciting pirate story. But we promise there'll be lots of pirate action in the next episode. Aye, tune in for more hearty swashbuckling tales from across the Severn Seas. Or at least the Baltic Sea. (laughs) Yes. Before we go, it's time to give a shout-out, though. It's a shout-out to Mike from Canada, who had the great sense to download one of our episodes while driving through Valhalla Centre the other month. Uh, No, Mike isn't dead, uh, just that some places in Canada have amusing names like Valhalla Centre. And Mike's also looking forward to a potential special episode on the Dala Horse or the Dala Hester. And that might actually end up being the very next special episode, or at least part of one, depending on how we go. We do have a few ideas in the pipeline, but um, one of them is proving to be quite hard to research, so this one might come in instead. Yes, we'll see. We haven't had any reviews uh, in a while, so please do send one if you would like to. Speaking of reviews and recommendations, we'd like to give a super shout-out to our retweeter-in-chief, Kara from Twitter, who we met on her birthday in Stockholm at the start of September. This is the first episode we are recording since then, so this is quite late. But once again, happy birthday and thanks for coming to say hi. It was great to see you along with Jimmy and Caroline. Yeah, thanks guys. It was really cool to see you and uh, have some fun Spanish food together in Stockholm to celebrate Cara's birthday. And thank you all for all the sharing and stuff you do on Twitter. It's absolutely helped us grow. And especially from Cara, who I think was retweeting us from before we'd even released an episode. We just announced that we were going to be a podcast. So that's amazing. And uh, we hope to see you again soon. Before we come back with the next episode, you can always check out our website, a aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where you can find all of our phrases, sources, maps, and episode pictures, and all that kind of stuff. And like Cara and co, you can get in touch on Facebook and Twitter, or via email using flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com, just like Mike did, and we'll see you next time. Yes, I hope you're all ready for some pirate adventures. Arr. Bye for now. Ahoy. And welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. We're covering all of Swedish history chronologically. I'm Chris. No, I'm not Chris. <laughs> We're keeping that in at the end. Well, we, we should just say, I'm Chris, and you'll say you're Elsa, and <laughs> I'll see if anyone notices. <laughs>